0: You're listening to Kamayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Kamayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. I have a few housekeeping items first. Everyone is on mute. And please do ask questions via the questions pane in your webinar toolbar. And as always, a recording and a copy of the slides will be sent in the post-webinar email that usually we get out in the next day or two, uh, probably by this afternoon. I am Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton IMA. We work with employers on a daily basis. We're having these practical discussions with employers, which means I'm not giving legal advice. We're just having a discussion, talking about the pros and cons, what's new out there and so forth. There are a lot of emerging laws, ordinances or guidance and regulations. So this is just my disclaimer to be diligent with your updates throughout the month as um, or before we get to the next Mayo's compliance talk, and the objective today is just help employers address or solve compliance concerns and issues that are most meaningful to you, our audience members. Having that said, that we are now with Ask Michelle podcast. It's a new half-hour format. You can ask Michelle at BoltonCo.com at any time throughout the month, and then I will read your question and provide the answer on air. All right, so compliance chatter. This is what I've heard in the past month since we've discussed before. So the first thing I wanna say is there's some great news. Small employers can now apply for that COVID-19 Supplemental Paid Sick, le- sick Relief Grant. The portal is open. We talked about this several months ago because one of the laws that was passed last year created a committee or a grant relief program in a committee that would then administer the grant relief. And it's available now. It's only for small employers. It's employers between, between 26 and 49 employees that provided COVID supplemental paid sick leave between January of 2021 and December of 2022. I've provided the link here. It's California or C A S P S L dot com. And I also provided some note some notes on what are qualifying businesses. So it has to be a small business. You have to be a C Corp or S Corp uh, or um a limited liability company partnership or limited partnership operating before 2021 or June of 2021. You have to be currently active and operating. And again, you had to have had 26 to 49 employees between January 1 of 2021 and December 31st of 2022. You will need to provide documentation that you actually did provide the supplemental paid sick leave during that time period. So you'll want to be prepared for that. But the website is open, the portal to apply is open, and you can visit that site to learn more about eligibility requirements and what you need to apply. The IRS has reminded us all once again via an IRS memo that if something sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. So we all need to be very cautious of what the IRS calls wellness schemes. It may not seem like a scheme when the representative approaches you, but it's really, it really is, that's how the IRS considers these. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit more details. So certain vendors approach our employers regarding uh, what they might call a wellness or indemnity plan to offer alongside the medical plan. The vendor often sells this as a win-win. The employees get more money in their paycheck and the employers save money via the payroll tax reduction. These indemnity benefits are set up to pay the employee without regard to unreimbursed medical expenses. And that's typically the issue with these arrangements. So a lot of these wellness indemnity vendors, they set it up so the employee might pay, let's say $200 a month pre-tax from their paycheck. And each month they're going to receive $200 for uh, let's say, uh, completing a health risk assessment. The problem is that all of that is tax-free to the employee and, frankly, to the employer because there's no payroll taxes on that money. But there's there's no regard to any unreimbursed medical expenses in that arrangement. And there's no regard to whether or not any actual medical care was received. Therein lies the issues and have always been an issue. Uh, These programs have been around since the 1970s and every uh, couple years vendors pop up and they they try to and they do succeed in selling these programs but they are not compliant. The IRS has issued several memos over the past several decades letting us know that employees cannot receive tax-free payments if the payment is given without regard to the medical service or without regard to any unreimbursed medical expenses. I do say this with regret. Unfortunately, it is not compliant with the IRS. If it sounds too good to be true, it it is in most situations. right? I had a question regarding the California Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, whether or not the count, the 26 to 49 employees counts full-time employees or all employees, and it actually is all, and you'll want to visit that link to find out how to, to, how to properly count uh, your employees. It's always the devil in the details with that type of thing. So we talked about the IRS wellness schemes. Schemes is a strong word, but just know if you're approached by a vendor and they're offering you a win-win situation with the IRS, that that can already, you know, your your yellow and your red flag should be waving. And then just contact your broker. Let your broker know. Hey, I was contacted by this company. It sounds really appealing. Is this something? I, uh, should I know something? You know. What should I consider before moving forward? That would be my advice there. Moving on to the Washington long-term care tax. We've talked about that many times throughout the last, uh, I believe, two years, but the deadline is now approaching, so I wanted to bring it up again. I, we did publish a Bolton blog and compliance alert last week. Employers must start collecting this tax July 1st. But really, in summary, employers with employees working in Washington, including those that work remotely from their home in the state of Washington, must work with payroll or your payroll vendors to collect the to collect the LTC tax starting July first. And then, of course, you need to remit that those uh, taxes or that revenue to the state of Washington. You must collect it from covered employees, so those working in Washington or living in Washington, unless the employee provides an exemption approval letter. Well, employees can apply for an exemption. and If they are approved, the employee will get a letter from the state of Washington called the exemption approval letter. In that event, the employer should then keep a copy of that employee's approval letter on file, and then, of course, you won't need to take the payroll tax, the LTC payroll tax, from that particular employee's paycheck. I do encourage you to read the blog if you have workers in Washington because I think it's a good idea to remind your employees that this tax is starting, and then also that provides your employee an opportunity to then hand you that exemption approval letter if they did indeed receive an exemption approval. Next, we have a few proposed healthcare bills. Now, this is proposed at the federal level. These bills have not been voted on, but they were adopted by the House Ways and Means Committee, which means they should very well go to vote. We're not sure when, but they absolutely should go to a vote but these are not laws that are currently uh, officially in play and effective they're just proposed at this point so we're looking at the telehealth expansion act which would permanently extend the option for employers to provide first dollar coverage of telehealth appointments for employees with HSAs so this would this would be a great a great thing i mean employers and employees alike they would be very happy to see this law Permanently be extended. Now, this a portion of this was already in play because of the pandemic, but of course that expired. So now the federal government, or there are certain people who are proposing to permanently extend this provision, so that those with HSAs can access telehealth uh, for first dollar coverage. That should be a good thing. So then the deductible doesn't have to apply if this goes into law. And then the last two proposed health care bills are with regards to ACA reporting. There's the paperwork burden reduction act with which would end the requirement that employers continue to mail both the 1095B and 1095C. The argument there is why would an employee need proof of health care coverage if the ACA no longer has that individual health care mandate? I mean, the reason that it was written into the ACA regulations, the healthcare reform or PPACA, if you will, is because employees would need something to prove that they had healthcare coverage to avoid the the individual mandate. But the individual mandate no longer exists at a federal level. So there is this act proposed now. Of course, it's not signed into law. It still needs to be voted on. But interesting to see if that does pass. And the last one I thought you might find of interest, which is proposed, is the Employer Reporting Improvement Act. It would grant employers relief from ACA reporting requirements by providing flexibility with personal info for the employees, spouses, and children. And it would extend the appeal window for a potential penalty to no sooner than 90 days. Right now, If an employer gets a penalty, they only have a short window to appeal. But this law would ensure that the window is is much larger, so not any sooner than 90 days. So that would be an improvement. And then another improvement that they are proposing is to implement a six-year statute of limitations on assessing penalties to employers. So this is all very employer-friendly. So imagine right now as it stands, employers have a very small window to appeal a penalty, but they could be on the hook for a penalty forever because there's no statute of limitations. So we all really like this, this proposed Employer Reporting Improvement Act, but we'll need to see what happens, so more to come on that. If these bills are passed into law, Bolton will promptly publish an alert so that you are aware. Colorado employers, please take note of new employment laws. This is something that came across my desk. I often check Fisher Phillips' website to see what's new with employment because here at Bolton, we're insurance brokers, so we often deal with uh, group benefit laws or group insurance laws. But when it comes to employment, I wanted you to know that Fisher Phillips published an article, 10 Things Colorado Employers Should Do in light of these new workplace laws. I recommend reading that if you have employees working in Colorado. And also Fisher Phillips has a reduction in force, or an RIF, a RIF or a WARN toolkit for employers. So if your employer is uh, considering layoffs or you will be implementing layoffs, I recommend this toolkit. It's not free, it does come at a cost, but it is a flat cost, so $1,500 for clients, for Fisher Phillips clients, and then $1,750 for non-Fisher Phillips clients. And the toolkit has a checklist, you can use their sample WARN notices, template separation agreements, which I think often comes in handy, and again, uh, even more. And I provided the link there. I had someone pose a question, is California excluded from that? And I wasn't really sure, I'm not sure which one you mean, my apologies. You you might be asking about the paperwork Burden Reduction Act where this one would propose to end the requirement to mail the 1095 and 1095, the 1095 B and C forms to employees. Now California does have an individual healthcare mandate but this is a federal law. So if this were to pass, the federal law applies to all states that don't already have a state individual mandate. And that's most states because we only have four or five states that, that still have an individual health care mandate. So my guess is if this Paperwork Burden Reduction Act does pass, California will move quickly to then codify their own requirement that California employers would need to provide a 1095C or 1095B. That's just my guess. This is all, we're all, we're just uh, speculating right now because none of this is actual law. So we've got Colorado employers needing to take note. And then we get to the Ask, Ask Michelle portion. I had a question come up about California long term care insurance. So, what am I hearing? is there any news regarding what options employers have that will allow their employee employees to opt out so first let me back up a little bit and say that california has a long-term care task force which submitted what we call a feasibility report in late of 2022 and the next step of the task force is to submit an actuarial report which is the numbers it's the financial part So these two reports together will be enough for legislators to sponsor a bill. But California itself can't force someone to sponsor a bill. It's really the intent is that after this actuarial report is released, which is due by the beginning of 2024, the intent is that the, one of the legislators will sponsor a bill, introduce the bill in the House or the Senate, and then it would be voted on and then potentially even go to the governor for signature. So we, I would say we're a bit away from any type of long-term care insurance. Anyone that approaches you with facts about a California long-term care insurance program is not giving you the whole truth. We don't have any facts. All we can do right now is speculate if we'll even have one. And if we do have one, we can only speculate what it will look like. The state is exploring several plan design options, which does include exemptions for those that already have coverage. So you asked what options employers would have for uh, or to allow employees to opt out. I mean, right now, we just don't know. We can only speculate. I think if we do have a long-term care tax here in California or a program in California, I do think it probably will have some sort of opt-out provision in it, but there's no guarantee. And we don't know what it will look like. In Washington, their opt-out provision stated that employees or individuals had to be enrolled in long-term care prior to the bill becoming effective. In fact, uh, quite a bit prior to that. So, it, it, I would say maybe you consider offering a long-term care product to your employees, and it may or may not help them avoid this California LTC tax in the future, if we even have one. So, you hear me using this language that's very loosey-goosey, and the reason why is we just don't have anything, we don't have anything proposed to even speculate on. Uh, all we know is that the California California has a long-term insurance task force and they are looking into this. That's about everything we know in a nutshell. The next question is timely. Do fully insured groups have to pay PCORI fees to the IRS? And the answer is no. Fully insured groups don't have to pay the IRS for PCORI fees. The carrier or the insurer, is, they're one and the same, they pay on behalf of a fully insured health plan. However, if you have a self-insured medical plan, then yes, you must pay the IRS directly. And by the way, a self-insured medical plan does include an HRA or in what we call an ICRA, which is an individual coverage HRA. I get a lot of questions around this topic. This topic is with regards to non-discrimination rules. We had an employer pose a question Um, And we actually have many employers like that. We have many California employers have employees working outside of California, and they can only offer a PPO to those employees working outside of California. Can an employer increase its contribution for only those living outside of California that must enroll in the PPO, or only have the PPO as an option? And yes, they could create a class, and increase the employer contribution for that class that's outside of California um, so that the PPO is considered affordable. That is possible. Uh, But the plan still has to pass non-discrimination testing, which is required by the IRS. And and there's no 100% 100 accurate way to know if the plan will pass without testing. Although I will say we can speak generally And one of the general statements I make is that it's important to know where your HCIs are located in this this scenario. So, if most of the non-California employees are HCIs, which is your highly comped individuals, and they are enrolled in the plan, this would be a more likely scenario for a failed non-discrimination test. But if there's a good mix of HCIs, and non-HCI's enrolled outside of California, then it will be less likely to pose an issue when you perform non-discrimination testing. The bottom line is that the only accurate way to know if this does pose an issue is to test your plan. And that must be done each year regardless. So I would say if if you're not familiar with non-discrimination testing, if you've never tested your plan for non-discrimination, then just know that it is required by IRS regulations that you test each year. Uh, So I would go ahead and test. And we're just switching topics over to bereavement leave in California. Someone uh, sent me a question and that they had heard the bereavement pay changed for California, that it is now five days paid from three days, effective January 1 of 2023. Is this correct? Well, I I don't know about from three days to five days, but I can tell you that California passed a new bereavement leave law that went into effect January of 2023, and it applies to employers with five or more employees. So covered employers must provide eligible employees with up to five days of leave upon the death of a family member. If you're wondering if you're a covered employer or what um, constitutes an eligible employee, I have provided the link there to the California Civil Rights Department, so CRD, and they have a a very nice section on this, including facts that can give you more information there. Well, that is it. I don't see any questions posed in the toolbar, but feel free to submit now if you'd like. For now, I'll leave you with some resources. The Bolton blog, of course, I recommend subscribing. You will not get all of our updates unless you are actually subscribed or opted into our blog, which is easy to do. Just boltonco.com slash blog and go to the bottom and and enter your email address. If you have a benefit-related question, Bolton clients can contact their Bolton team or their Bolton consultant. And for Bolton clients, don't forget you have Mineral. You can access Mineral as an employment resource used to be Think HR and something on our minds is the Medicaid enrollment and the unwinding tracker. Don't forget that Medicaid's continuous coverage provision has ended. So with Medicaid renewals, we anticipate that there will be a good number of individuals who will be disenrolled from Medicaid because they no longer qualify. Disenrollments in California are expected to begin in July. So we're not feeling a lot of impact here in the state of California from Medicaid. Uh, other states have already begun, so they've started to see impact. In fact, as of June 20th, based on the most current data from 22 states, 35% of people with a Medicaid renewal are, being, are disenrolled. So 35% of people with Medicaid renewals are being disenrolled. And so the question is, where do they go when they're disenrolled? Well, they have the option to join your group health plan uh, as a qualifying event, or of course they can go into the individual marketplace. And so that's why it's important for employers just to kind of note that this is happening behind the scenes because you may have more than you would normally expect. You may see more employees approaching you in july and thereafter in the state of california to say hey i was i'm no longer eligible for medicaid i'd like to join the group health plan so just just fyi i do have a few questions here so i'll take those before we sign off today we had a question about is COVID pay of any amount completely over yes to my knowledge well i can say with certainty yes federally COVID pay is over. There, there, we're not in any type of um, dates where someone could take, let's say, COVID leave right now and then expect reimbursement of that leave. The pandemic is over at the federal level, so there's no more COVID pay left there. There might be some municipalities or or cities that still have some type of COVID pay that you could, uh, an employee could submit for but I I wouldn't know with regards to that. California supplemental paid sick leave is over, yes. And that has been over since the beginning of the year. And a question about the bereavement leave for California. Someone had asked, I thought the bereavement leave is to allow for five days off for bereavement. Okay, yes, that part is accurate if you're a covered employer, but the company doesn't have to pay them separate from PTO that the employee has available. Well, those are, that is really more detail oriented. Your question. I don't have the details behind that, but you could. I definitely recommend, I'm going to bring the link back up, going to the California Civil Rights site, uh, so CRD, and checking out their bereavement leave questions and answers. Uh, Civil Rights Department, they understand that there are going to be a lot of questions surrounding this. So my guess is that your question that you posed will be found in the facts that the CRD has already provided. So you can click on the link I, I have here on the screen. That's it for today. Thank you so much, everyone. I'll talk to you next month. Bye, everyone.